The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And uh, today, guess what? It's Friday, which means it is the uh, Duff McKagan joke of the week. And I know we can sure use a laugh to start our weekend, uh, especially after this week. So, Duff, take it away. Hey, uh, Chris Jericho. It's Duff McKagan calling you. I hope you're doing well, dude. Uh, you know, all things considering. Um, I, I don't know. I think I forgot to tell you uh, before this pandemic before the stay-at-home order, this goddamn stupid virus. Uh, I, uh, before this all happened, I met this girl in the park. She works at the, uh, the battery kiosk there at the park. Yeah, she sells sea cells by the seesaw. Okay, thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs> I wonder how long it took for Duff to come up with that one. I, I, I consider him to be like a diabolical maniac who just sits in his room or diabolical genius and comes with these jokes, but I'm hoping he probably just goes to some kind of a website or whatever. But uh, thanks to Duff for bringing the laughs every Friday. And thanks to all you guys for hanging out with me on Saturday night since this uh, pandemic started. The Saturday night special is going strong. We'll be doing it again tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern on Facebook Live and my official YouTube channel. Just uh, search Chris Jericho. You'll find me in the show. It's going to be uh, the Dave Spivak Project High School Reunion with Ribo and Spiwi. Bring your questions, uh, bring your sing-along requests, bring your bevies, and come hang tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern on Facebook Live and my official YouTube channel. All right, today, Dennis DeYoung is on the show, the original singer of Styx, one of the most unique and classic voices in rock and roll history. He's also got some great stories about the band's early days opening for Kiss, writing some of their biggest songs like Mr. Roboto, and he's talking about why he's no longer in the band uh, Dennis also has a brand new studio album, 26 East, that just came out recently. He co-wrote some of the songs with another rock and roll legend, Jim Peterick of Survivor. You know, Eye of the, Tig- uh, Eye of the Tiger, that's Jim Peterick's tune. We'll hear what Dennis has to say about the state of music today versus what it was like in the Sticks Haiti in the 70s and 80s. And you're going to hear Judas sing, uh, but it's not one of his songs. It's a Fozzy tune, and I'm super excited about it. It's coming up now on Talk is Jericho. One of the cool things about being uh, locked down uh, in this uh, time is you get a chance to talk to a lot of different people, uh, including a man that I've uh, never had the chance to talk with, but I've always been a big fan of, Mr. Dennis DeYoung. Uh, here, I'm talking to you in Chicago, maybe? Yes, and guess what? What? Judas in, Judas in, I got Judas in my mind. Wow, that's a good way to start huh? it. See? Huh? <laughs> Perfect. 
<laughs> I love that song. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. You write that? Uh, I had uh, a part in uh, uh, a little bit in the lyrics, but melodies and um, and uh, the music itself was written by the other guys in the band. Oh, okay. Next time you do that, that video, I want to be that clown in the background. That. <laughs> well, I appreciate you checking it out. How did I do on your song, dude? I mean, uh, can you you want to just take over? You want to be the new singer of Fozzie now? <laughs> no way. Listen. <laughs> If I did one performance, you know, when you were that thing in the beginning, when you going, rah, rah, oh, God, that would be the end of my career. I'd never <laughs> sing that. 911, please. <laughs> you know, here's my joke about uh, a guy, not like you, you sing, but those guys in those death metal bands, you know? Mm -hmm. No concert has ever been canceled because the lead singer had laryngitis. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think of that, of, of, of modern music? Because you have such a, a great, distinct voice. Uh, always have and still do right now on, on your new record, 26 East. What do you think of those other types of music, the more the heavier type stuff and the, the growl vocals and that sort of thing? Hey, you know, I love, I, I have the, the, the broadest taste in music you'll ever get, Chris, and it doesn't matter to me. Anything that's well done, I'm into. Now, the guy in our, um, uh, one of our, our, guitar, our guitar tech, he, uh, he loves this stuff, and he gave me a whole bunch of stuff to listen to. And uh, Rob, mm -hmm. from uh, he's up in Wisconsin, and um, and I listened. I thought, well, okay, I, I, you know, a lot of bass drum. And I don't know how those guys play those drums like that, but it's really, you know, it's technically quite good. But uh, other than that, you know, I'm a melody man, right? And, and like for the major, so I tend to like stuff that has melody, and um, that's just me. I guess it's because it's what I do. But uh, that's always been my, my number one concern when writing songs is, here's what I do. People ask me, how do you go about this process? This is all I've ever done. I found some chords, okay? And then I, 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 I put some notes on those chords that sounded right to me. And then I attached lyrics to those notes, and I gave the listener my point of view about my life and what I saw around me, hoping that they would find themselves in my story. That's all I've ever done. That's what a songwriter does. He's hoping that he, he, whatever he creates, the audience will say, well, that's not the song about Dennis. That's my song. That's what you try to do. You, gotta, you try to connect in that, in that way. And that's the truth, because when people say, what do the lyrics mean to this? or What do the lyrics mean to that? Uh, it's kind of like, what do they mean to you? H how do you identify with them, and how do they relate to your life and what you're going through? Yes, because people, here's how lucky I am. I go places now, wherever I play a concert, say I was supposed to play the Hard Rock in Cleveland until everything went, you know, belly up. And if I went to Cleveland, people, if they got a chance to talk to me, or they'll go on my Facebook page, they'll tell me stories about how much what I was involved in creating changed and made their life better. And I think, who's a luckier guy than me? I'm 73, and people are just telling me this. Usually 73-year-olds were trying to kick them to the curb, and yet strangers will come up to me and thank me for coming to Cleveland as if I'm there with the Red Cross. <laughs> I'm there because I'm a jobbing musician out on the road. You know, but people held the music from that period that I, that I performed in essentially the 70s and the early 80s, they, they hold it in such reverence because at that time, music was, was central to all young people's lives. And I was lucky to live that time, lucky to be born in that era to make music. So 
uh, I've led a charmed life when it comes to that. So when people come up and tell me, yeah, you know, that, that story and that song, this is what happened to me. Man, am I a lucky guy? And the thing is, too, you, you mentioned the, the time frame kind of that sticks was was so huge. It was really a golden age in, in rock and roll from that late 70s, early 80s, along with Foreigner and Journey and, you know, Speedwagon and all these bands that are still touring to this day and drawing, you know, thousands of people, yourself included as a solo act. Uh, was it the radio that made it so special at that time frame or what was the connection there? I like to think it was symbiotic. Um, we made music, all of those bands during that period of time, that was, um, I, I, dare I say, accessible. Mm -hmm. It was the kind of music people liked. A lot of people just loved that kind of music. Those bands, if you think back, and if I had any criticism of modern rock, I'll tell you in a minute, but in that period, almost every band that you would listen to had what I would consider as a unique singer. Somebody who could act, they were singers, rock singers, but they could sing. Uh, I think that was part of it, but you can never, ever discount uh, the radio's importance. Because if you made a great song and nobody ever heard it, what would be the point? In fact, in my life, I can point to the perfect example. I wrote Lady, which was the first song I ever wrote by myself and sang on a record, and it was for the very first Sticks album, but the guy who owned the record company wanted us to record four other songs that had nothing to do with us, outside writers. One of them, believe it or not, was George Clinton. Can you imagine? Wow, yeah. I know, they kept Lady off the first album, but when it was on the second album, and it was released. It was a stiff. Hmm. It was a terrible record company that, that had no ability to promote anything. And that album had five songs on it that were all mine of the seven that were recorded. And honest to God, Chris, I thought people hate what I do because Lady was an expression of what I just do. And so consequently, two and a half years later, quite by accident, WLS starts to play the song for, for lots of reasons. But if WLS doesn't start to play Lady, two and a half years later, which you know in popular music is like 10, Jeez, yeah. it, uh, the, the song became a worldwide hit. If they hadn't have played that song, I wouldn't be talking to you on this phone. So the relationship between the music and the radio was so vital and so important. And the first song on this final album that I've recorded, this 26 East album, is called East of Midnight, which is really a tribute to listening to music on, you know, with a little radio under your pillow mm -hmm. when you're supposed to be in bed and, and dreaming the dreams that that music brought to your mind. So radio, and this is why when Serafino from Frontiers Records said, I want you to make a new record, he, he bothered me for three years. I said, I want to, Serafino, because rock and roll music has no radio outlet anymore. And that's how I would reach my fans. So I didn't want to make this record. But radio is was so vital to everything that happened to us. Both things had to work hand in hand. There's a lot of stuff to talk about from what you just said, but let's talk right now. You, you said 26 East being your final studio album. This is kind of, and I know that from Frontiers, I mean, these, this guy, he puts out records by so many great bands. It kind of gives guys a, a second chance, or he's putting together super groups and all this other stuff. So how did he... How did you get on his radar in the first place to start convincing you to do your final record? Sarah, I did a, um, a video. Guys, kids, you can go to what's on YouTube, Dennis DeYoung and the Music of Sticks, live in L.A. Mm -hmm. It was for an Access TV show that we recorded it with my band. And um, I took ownership 
of, of the thing after we did it that was part of the deal, Serafino came along out of the clear blue and said, I'll, I, I want to promote it, make you a, two D, a DVD, two-album thing. He did. It was a beautiful package. That was the end of it. And then right after that, he came to me and kept, kept asking me, Dennis, make a new studio album. And I says, uh, Serafino, I don't see the point to it. Uh, so and anyway, my buddy Jim Peterick, who wrote Eye of the Tiger, who was in Survivor, and he was the singer and songwriter of Vehicle, he lives three blocks from me. And he, him and Serafino, I think, had tea one day, and, and Jim kept saying to me, come on, Den, come on, Den, the, the world needs your music. I said, have the world text me. I don't really, <laughs> I don't believe that. So anyway, he wore me down. He uh, wrote this, uh, did this demo of a song he was writing called Run for the Roses. I heard it, and I said, well, that's a humdinger, dude. Let's get together and see if we can finish this song. Before you knew it, we had finished eight songs. And so I went on to record about 18 songs over two years. And half of them mine, half of them me and Jim. And uh, so when it came down uh, to, to whittle them down for 26 East, which, by the way, is the address of my parents' home <laughs> where Nucleus of Sticks was formed in 1962. The Panazzo brothers, John and Chuck, who lived across the street from me, three kids in that basement of that house formed the band. So for me, you know, it's like full circle, Chris. Right, right. I started there, and I figured that's where it should end. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. First song on the record you mentioned, East of Midnight. It's, it's a great rock and roll tune, and it's it borders on proggy at times, which is Sticks always had that influence uh, to it. Uh, are you a fan of, of prog rock? Because you're one of kind of the bands in the '70s that was like a Yes or like a Rush that was able to kind of bring that style of music more into the forefront. Yeah, I think when we formed in 1970 with the final members, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Yes. You know, Moody Blues, whatever. They were all coming to the fore. Uh, Jethro Tull, some of his stuff. And um, I idolized everything English. And another thing, Keith Emerson, when I heard those synthesizers, I said, hey, here's a chance where I can compete with those show-off guitar players. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we kind of adopted that. We were never a prog band. All the prog diehards, we know what they're like. Mm-hmm. Uh, the oh, We never intended to be. We were just a band at heart, that was an American rock and roll band who did proggy things from time to time. But when you think about it, uh, yeah, I like the music, but, you know, it's it's like this. We were really an American rock and roll band, and we did so many different styles of music throughout our career that I think it's tough to categorize us. But in the beginning, I would say we were kind of a rock and roll prog band, and uh, that's what we did. You had a great mix, too, of, of these really, like you said, radio-type ballads, but also a great rock and roll band. I was, I was just listening to uh, something like Miss America the other day where you're not singing on it, but there's just this crazy uh, keyboard solo in the middle, like you said, where you're able to compete with the, with the uh, you know, loudmouth guitar players. Was it fun for you to have both sides of that coin, to be just completely rocking and then have a really sweet ballad like Babe or Lady, like you mentioned? None of it was intentional. I, I think, you know, people think, oh, they thought this through. No, we were stupids. 
you know, we were just making stuff up as we went along. Uh, and whatever we wrote, we had three writers, three singers at times. And whatever we wrote is what we wrote. So, no, I mean, Babe was never even even written for sticks. It was, I, I did a demo. It was a birthday present for my wife, Suzanne. That's all it was. And then it turned out so good that the record company wanted it. It was never written for sticks. But I, what I like about music is variety. Mm-hmm. That's my choice. I like that. I mean, you can have a band that's doing Renegade and doing Babe and Mr. Roboto. What do those three songs have in common, Chris? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> So I like that about Sticks. We were, you know, we were like uh, we were like the Carol Burnett show. We were variety. So when I look back at what we created as a group, I think, hey, I, I can be I can be proud of it. I said, that's a job well done. There, you kids. I mean, you know, for th- for five guys that didn't know nothing, you did okay. Mm-hmm. Now people come up to me and they say, Oh, Dennis, this this song it means so much to me. How did you know what I was feeling? Like forty years later, they say this, and I think. Here's what I think. You know this. You are a competitor in everything you do. Are you not? Yes, sir. Absolutely. When you're in that ring, we were in that ring too back then. We weren't thinking about the music that 60-year-olds would be coming up to me and telling me about. We were in the ring. We were just trying to beat Queen and Aerosmith, for God's sake. That's what we were <laughs> You know what I mean? Hey, come over here. Uh, Queen's got a new song. I, I think I want to do the figure figure four grapevine on them. I mean, really, you know? <laughs> We're in the middle of it, baby. We're sweating like you in that ring, thinking, how are we going to win? Was there a lot of competition uh, amongst bands back then, uh, between the bands themselves, and obviously between the record companies, too? Oh, my God. Of course there was. It's just like what you do. It's like a baseball. This is competition. Every, there's only so many slots on a radio station. Right. Whatever it is. Everyone was competing to get heard on the radio. That's how you reach fans. No internet kids. You know what I mean? Nobody was, nobody was uh, texting somebody saying, hey, check this band out. You had to call them on the phone or talk to them about it when you were at lunchtime in, in high school. So we relied on the radio. And we were all in competition. That's what we were trying to do, make the best music we could make. Because we knew. I always tell the story. First time I saw Bohemian Rhapsody. It was on Friday Night Videos, and I even heard the song, right? Now, Queen's second al- first album came out a year after Styx's first album. I bet you didn't know that, did you, Chris? I did. I never heard Queen until 1975, didn't know who they were. Right. So I'm watching, when you talk about competition, right? You know when you see a wrestler, right, that's doing something, you go, man, that dude's doing, he's doing that thing, look at that, right? Right. So I'm watching Friday Night Videos, and Bohemian Rhapsody comes on. And I watch and I go, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I said, man, what the heck was that? That's something. But the good news for the rest of us was, as good as Queen was, nothing was ever Bohemian Rhapsody. It was just that special. But that's the feeling you get. You know, like, man, them guys, are. how am I going to top that? That's what you're doing. It's giving you inspiration to try and up your game as well. Absolutely. Are you, you're working on moves all the time, aren't you? Well, yeah, everything, but it moves, and, and like you said, the different podcasts or different songs, you, you always want to continue to push yourself to become a, a more complete artist, uh, and for your fans as well. How many, how many gigs do you do a year? It depends. I mean, obviously, this year, we had to postpone a tour as well, just like you did, but we've done probably 150 to 180 gigs 
per tour cycle. So that's over an 18-month period or so. Holy cow! Man, that's a load, baby. Well, I'm sure you guys did the same back in the 70s and 80s, too. Yeah, we did. Well, you know, we usually did around 110, 120. We never really did. We, one time we did 130. But, you know, we, uh, we didn't do that many. Um, but that's a load you're doing now, baby. How's the, how the pipes holding up? I feel pretty good. I've been pretty blessed with a with a stronger voice. So we 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 do five days a week, two off, and until I start feeling a little bit frayed, that's kind of the best way. Because you know how it is, Dennis, nowadays to stay on the road. I mean, a day off, you still got to pay the band, you got to pay the crew, you got to put gas in the tank. So just from a financial standpoint, the more gigs you can do, the better if you're on an actual tour. Absolutely. And I listen as, when people ask me about. And listen, of course, my. I, I, I planned this, uh, Chris, in, in case you didn't know, I said, I worked on this album for two, two years. When would be the perfect time to release the first single? Let me think. How about a pandemic? Mm, perfect. <laughs> so I did that. I had this tour all planned. And, of course, we all know now when people ask me, what about the tour? I, 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 I do refer them to my new tour manager, the CDC. <laughs> actually, uh, I don't know if you know, but your, your, your guitar player right now, Steve Brown, I know he filled in for some gigs. He's actually a very good friend of mine. Yeah, no, Steve, he's, you know, he, he, he's fantastic. He's, we've done some work together. I just played a, uh, a keyboard solo on, on his newest project. And he, um, he, he's so great that he, can, he fills in for either of my, my players that are uh, on tour normally with either August or, or Jimmy Leahy. So he's that, he's, you know, he's a whiz, baby. He's, he's a real deal. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You, you, you have a great band because those are some great parts that you got to play in all of those songs. But you mentioned to me as well, talking about, about how does your pipes hold up. At 73 years old, I mean, on this record, you sound exactly like you always have. Uh, the live clips I've seen, it's the same. How are you able to hold up? Because you've got quite a, a high range for a lot of those songs. Here's what I would tell you as a singer. How old are you? You're not a kid anymore. How old are you? Yeah, I'm 49. Okay. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't do drugs. That's, that's step number one. Mm-hmm. You've got to have some dumb, stupid luck in life. What, the way my voice sounds and the way I'm able to sing is something that I protected and was very careful with. I always tell people, no drugs, no alcohol, blah, 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 blah. blah. And when my kids were bad, I hired Olga, the big Ukrainian woman, to yell at them. <laughs> but that's why I ask for a guy like you. Now, you do sing. But when you do that, that stuff, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have lasted if I tried to do that. Just my voice doesn't work that way. Um, I have to be uh, careful with what I do. And in particular now when I'm this age, you know, I do three shows in a row sometimes. Mostly it's two times a week, Fridays and Saturdays. Uh, and, you know, because I'm doing a lot of songs, as you well know, where I'm by myself with one instrument. Nowhere to hide, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. The guitars, the band ain't crashing. It's just me, my piano, and a spotlight. So under those circumstances, there's no, you, you know, there's plenty of room for failure. So I really am very careful. But when it comes down to it, I was lucky to have, you know, to have this voice. Mm-hmm. And so I protected it. There's, there's, no other, there, there's no other explanation. When you were touring kind of at Styx's height, did you go out a lot with other bands or were you basically just touring on your own? Because nowadays it's all about the package and there's two or three bands on a bill. What was it like back in the, in the, in the days of when you guys were, were at your peak? Well, you know, if Lady been on the first album and it was played 
the whole trajectory of the Styx band would have been different. In 1972, everyone would have been aware of us. No one would ever think that we came after Queen or Foreigner right, or right. Boston or Kansas. We were years before those people. But because we're on a local record company and it was the worst, we, we suffered in obscurity. Hmm. So we were what I used to call the very best unknown backup band on the circuit. We backed up Kiss and Aerosmith and ZZ and Seeger. You name them. Okay, we backed them all up. And then we recorded in 77 the Grand Illusion album, and we, we, we really come, went to the East Coast for the very first time, and we were on a tour with Aerosmith and a couple other people. We were just so good. It was ridiculous. And so when the people like at the Spectrum in Philadelphia heard us for the first time in Aerosmith, their heads were pinned back. And after the Grand Illusion broke, then we became headliners ourselves. So... We had a long, painful trajectory to get to the top. And in many ways, I'd be, the only thing about it that was valuable was you didn't get it everything all at once and it would go to your head where you would start believing that you, you deserved it. Mm-hmm. I would say nobody deserves nothing in this world. As far as I can tell, you either earn it or you don't. You either get it or you don't. There's no, there's no earning, no fairness. As we find out right now, we are uh, big blobs of pizza and coffee spinning through the universe. You know what I mean? Try, try to think, convince yourselves we're in control. We're not. <laughs> right. So there is no fairness. There is no, you deserve this. I don't buy into that. So we had a long, as I say, a long road to the top. And valuable lessons were learned. The only thing, I, as I say, I bemoan is that people don't understand that style of music that we did in 1972 was unique to us. We were doing that, you know, that, that mixture of music with those high screeching vocals <laughs> <laughs> that we could do live. There isn't a song we played that we couldn't play live. That's what I always liked about us. And um, there you go. So we played with everybody. Who were some of the bands that you played with that were just on fire at that time? We played with them all. Um, like, What was it like opening for Kiss, for example, in 1977? Well, you know, look, Kiss fans... Dare I say it, they were like politics today. You joined a club or a tribe, mm-hmm. right, like we do today, and people are fanatical. And Kiss tamped into an adolescent male audience, and they tapped deep. Uh, Gene Simmons, who I know, I think he's a genius. Yeah. I mean, he just is. He's a smart guy about so many things. And... That whole thing that they did, uh, when we first played with them, here's, here's, here's a good story. Gene Simmons, Gene, he's got a memory. I was talking to him last time I saw him. It was at Adam Sandler's party, and, he, and I said to him, do you remember the first time we met? And he said, just like this, Rapid City, South Dakota. I said, wow. <laughs> uh, neither of us were anybody who was 73. Never heard of Kiss. They were in the bar. We came in. And we, 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 were, we were shooting the, the breeze because the, the, can, the, the concert, I think, yeah, it was canceled because it was a torrential racer. We just talked for about 10, 15 minutes. That was it. I never heard of them and didn't even know they did makeup and all that stuff. So, you know, the next time I saw them, we were backing them up. And when I saw the show, I went, oh, my God. It was the biggest, loudest, brashest thing that I'd ever seen in my life. 
Uh, of course, Gene would probably admit, I hope he would, that he owes some of, the, some of that stuff to Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. Was, one, was the first guy to do that thing in spades. But Gene and his band, Paul, and the guys, they tapped into that adolescent thing. I remember we came on stage, I think it was Kobo in Detroit, and we came on stage and everybody, you know, people are painted up like the band. And you're thinking, oh, man, being the opening act for any popular band was not an enviable job. You know what I mean? Right. Because you'd hear, or whatever the band was, you know what I mean? Because they don't know you. And you come on, you better be good. Well, we were good. And so the thing I, I always think about the Kiss audience when we played in front of visit, nobody booed. And as far as I was concerned, that was a victory. <laughs> <laughs> you want to hear a crazy story? Anyway, let's talk about my album. I could tell you these worst stories forever. Let's just briefly touch on 26 East. Well, yeah, of course we're going to touch on 26 East, but I do want... I'm going to ask you a question. Did you listen to the record at all? I did. I did. I, I love... Second song, with all due respect. That was a great tune. It has a really cool kind of almost uh, like a scat beginning or something like that. It's kind of an, a, a, a very... Uh, I don't even know, a unique intro to that song. Yeah, did you laugh? Well, I thought, With all due respect, you are. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's what I mean. I, I love the fact that, that you have this album. Because, um, you, you know, I, I don't know at 73 years old, is this going to be just an album full of babes and ladies? And you come out of the gate with some killer, like I said, rock and roll proggy for the first track and uh, kind of a, a heavy second track, all this sort of stuff. You're definitely still rocking very much on this record, uh, at this stage of the game. Well, thanks. You know, the thing is, you know, people sometimes forget that Lady Rocks, Come Sail Away Rock. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're right, yeah. Madam Blue, uh, I mean, our, our Styx's biggest track, AOR track, you know, radio rock track, that was not released as a single is Sweet Madam Blue. Yeah. I wrote that song. So I did rock a lot. Yeah. I had, the, the I think, the good fortune to write some hit ballads that people really loved. And so sometimes it's like anything else. It's typecasting, right? Right. When you have big success with something, an audience that isn't familiar with everything you've done, I wrote The Grand Illusion, right? Mm -hmm. Welcome to The Grand Illusion. That's a rocker. I did all that (laughs) stuff. That's it, baby. Uh, You know, thank you. Oh, he wrote Babe. Yeah, I did. And, but I wrote all the other rockers. So this album is really a culmination aimed right at the old Sticks uh, fans that like the little variety on their records, but they want the proggy, the rocky. They want it all. Uh, I tried to give it to them. And, and that's what uh, that's what you hear it on this record. And you're saying this is volume one. So so because you, you mentioned you, you did 18 songs for this. So you have volume two locked and loaded and ready to go as well. I have a couple. I, I have like eight songs written. There'll probably be two more, all recorded. Um, it's because the record company wanted all the songs. I said they won't. You can't put them all on one record. So it was their idea to divide them up. And uh, I said, "Is there money involved?" They said, "Yes." Chris, that's a great motivator. That money. Have you ever noticed? It really is. Yes. This is- <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Okay, then I'll have an extra uh, uh, an extra order of fries because we're going to divide them in, into two albums." The longest field goal ever attempted is seventy six yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also seventy six yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. 
So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Tell us about the uh, song you did with Julian Lennon, Good Old Days. Where it began, so shall it end, 2060s, right? Right. Um, I wrote this Beatle tribute song for my album, and it was beatle I'm talking, I'm ripping them off left and right, baby. <laughs> Unashamedly. Because on 2964, when they were on Sullivan, my life changed. It was that night. I decided I would be a professional musician. That was it. One day, you know, I'm going to do something. This, I'll do that. Then it was that. That was it. And that's when uh, TW4, the original name of the band, Sticks, mm-hmm. we started playing rock music. Before that, we weren't. Pl- I played accordion, Chris. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Can you imagine the chip on my shoulder? <laughs> anyway, um, so I thought, who would sing this song with me? And I thought about Jules. And then I realized he can't sing this kind of song. So I said, wait a minute. I want to write a song for Jules and I to sing. I went to the piano and I wrote to the good old days. Did a demo. I sent it to him. I don't know him. I never met him. Hmm. Sent it to his business manager. Never expecting a response. And he said he'd be honored to do it. We met in New York. We did the track. I came home and mixed it. There it is. I love it. Couldn't be happier. Um, go to the go, go wherever you go, kids, to listen to music. I don't care. You know, slap chap, smack jack. I mean, whatever you go. <laughs> Apple crunch. You know, tweener. I don't care. Um, and t- give it a listen. It's on YouTube, I think, for free. There's no video. The video is coming. There was supposed to be a video, but guess what happened, Chris? Pandemic. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> Everything happened. So. Um, yeah, I love the tune. But that's the thing, though, Dennis, when you're talking about the, listening to music wherever you can. Uh, you know, in this day and age, it, it, your music is basically just an advertisement for the live show. Isn't that a crime? Isn't it crazy? I mean... It's, no, it's a crime. Wait a minute. Yeah. I'm telling you, I lived the greatest time, greatest time in the history of mankind to be a musician. Mm-hmm. Never before and never after will so many cats and chicks have the opportunities we had. The kids today... Rock has been dead for 10 years. Nobody informed it because the delivery system crumbled. Mm -hmm. Rock radio is what rock radio. And, you know, if you're expecting people to go to the Internet to make their choices, that's too much. And so now the Internet, because of technology, this idiotic notion that music should be free developed. Yeah. No, it shouldn't. Well, wait a minute. I, I Music should be free along with mortgage payments, bananas, and radial tires. <laughs> right? Well, if you're, absolutely. I mean, like you said, Dennis, I mean, our first album came out in 2000, and that was right at the end of, of, of record companies actually giving bands actual money for a record deal. But back when, you know, in any time, 90s, 70s, 80s, a band would have revenue streams from the live show, from the merch, and from the records. Now that's gone completely. Yeah. Look, you and I better we, we we better not get in front of that train because it'll roll over us. Mm-hmm. That happened. It was allowed to happen, and now you have people who, by and large, who had nothing to do with the investment, owning the music and licensing it to strangers. 
So musicians can be paid nothing. Now, listen, kids, I'm not talking about you got to make musicians millionaires. That's not what I'm saying. But when somebody gives you the joy that I know music gives you, you should compensate them in some way so they can have the opportunity to repeat, rinse and repeat that process so you can get more joy. But the more bands in particular, that's why pop is so popular right now because it's one person. But when you have four or five people relying on income to exist, it's going to make it very, very difficult. And I'm not saying musicians, like I said, have to be overpaid, but they got to be paid. Musicians cannot exist on performing alone because the business model is upside down. You used to, you used to tour because people know your music. If they don't know your music, how can you tour? And you have the luxury too of having you know forty years of, of a huge fan base and giant classic rock and roll songs behind you. So, but like you said, for a newer band coming out. Uh, how do you amass that fan base? It's, it's such a, a, a vicious cycle. How do you get people in the venues to hear your songs to get paid if you can't get your music out to them for them to hear it? And it's just, it goes around and around and around. Simple. Scoundrels and robber barons and people who think all things should be free. Mm-hmm. You know and I know. We're adults. I'm a very old one. <laughs> but we know this. If somebody says something is free, you better check the fine print. Somebody's paying somewhere. This idea that developed that you could produce a product, which is really what music is, that should be free, you know. And I used to tell people when this began with the file sharing, I said, you know, this is going to be the end of this thing. And, of course, a lot of people who write about rock music who know nothing, let me just clarify that for the most part, they're going to tell you, No, we can finally get away, you know, from the man. Because that's their whole thing. Oh, we're fighting the establishment. The man. We we see these are two. The man. You know what I think? Have I said this already? You're the man. You signed a record contract with a multinational corporation. Right. There's a product that would be sold. You're the man. It's idiotic. It's It's a grand illusion. Musicians... It's a job. It's a great job. the best job. They make music. They play concerts to give joy to people who are in need of it. Are they not? Now more than ever. Yes. Now more than ever to the good old days. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> good segue. <laughs> good job. <laughs> so what's it going to be like when you are able to go back on tour? What type of a mix will you play uh, of this new record with all the great songs that are on it, and then, of course, all the great songs in, in your catalog from Styx. I have found that so many bands like myself and artists, my fan base is rightly in love with the music of their youth that made them feel good about their life. And what they do when they come to see me, 85% of them are there for nostalgia. Mm-hmm. To feel that, to capture that spirit, because music can do that for you. I've often said, I can hear certain songs from my youth. I can smell things. Did you hear what I said? I can smell a smell. I associated that song with the middle of summer, perhaps, and the way the trees smelled in my neighborhood. That's what music does. It attaches you to memory. And that's what they want. 
They want to hear, I can name you the 15 hits that they, they, they want to hear. And if I offer them a chance to hear, like I say, new music, most dreaded words to a classic rock fan. <laughs> <laughs> so you can play a song from your new album, which we will, but that's a great time for those old people to get up and take a bathroom break. Mm. You see, you know that. Right. New music, especially from someone who has a career of 40 years. But we'll put it in. We'll, we'll mix it up so you're going to get the majority of things that you really paid to see. Now, if I go to see an artist, I'm no different. And I love their music. And, and they decided not to play three or four big hits that I'm there to see. That's a disappointment. And I understand it. I'm no different than you. I want to hear the songs I love. I read uh, some of that Paul McCartney said once. It was, I always think of, he said, whenever I play a new song, I always give the audience a spoonful of sugar afterwards and play something that, that a classic. So I think if you give them that spoonful of sugar, uh, you know, after you do a new song or right before you do a new song, I think people will be more apt to, to, to check it out because it's all great stuff. But like you said, the word new song is, is the worst thing you could say to a classic rock fan. I, I do that. Exa- I, you know, I follow McCartney. Whatever he does, I do. So I agree. You've got to put, you, you just can't say, ladies and gentlemen, here's four songs from our new album to start a show. That's a, that's a good way to end your career. Mm. You know, because people are thinking, wait a minute, because without radio, they don't even know those four songs for the most part. So you're asking people to listen cold to something. That's a lot to ask, especially from an audience that in my case, people are late 40s through the early 60s. They know what they like. That's why they're there. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's interesting when you have a, kind of a, a split with, with, with Sticks, and Sticks is still out on tour on one side of the coin, and you're on the other side, but you, you got the voice, and they've got the name. Does that confuse people ever, or do your fans pretty much know that this is, you know, Dennis D. Young, the man, and here he is type thing? That confuses me. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, back in 1998, after we had two huge, success, hugely successful um, reunion tours in 96 and 7, 98, I got sick. Mm-hmm. I had, I got influenza A. And as we know now, these viruses do damage. That's not just short-term, but also long-term. And I developed what I didn't know at the time was light sensitivity from this rotten flu that I could not shake. Mm-hmm. And so the next year or so, I was just, I, was, I thought I had chronic fatigue. I couldn't get a diagnosis. The guys knew it. There were only three of us left. It wasn't a band. It was Tommy, J.Y., and myself. Mm-hmm. We start making a new album. I'm doing it really out of my sick bed, but we're getting there. And then they wanted me to commit to a tour. And then during that period, I discovered that light was what was making me fatigued. So I started wearing sunglasses and staying out of the sun. And I, I was getting better. And I said, give me, you know, give me another six months to recover. Let's finish this album. I'll be ready to go. Tommy and JY decided 
they gave me the ultimatum. Show up on this date to rehearse for the tour or we're going to replace you. Hmm. That's what they did. Any story they told after that, any cock and bull story about Mr. Roboto or ballads or anything else is a smokescreen to cover up the fact that those two guys replaced a sick colleague. Now, here's the joke of it all. Over the last 20 years, I was left, and I had to kind of rebuild my solo career, which I have done with the help of uh, Tim Orchard, a guy uh, who's my manager. Mm -hmm. But if any of all those other stories about, you know, in, in the 2000 behind the music thing, they started to relitigate the Kilroy tour and Mr. Roboto. Why would they do that some 23 years later? And what were they saying about it? Well, Tommy quit mm -hmm. during the Kilroy tour in 1983 to pursue a solo career. He left us behind. The four of us went, you're quitting? You know, we were one of the b biggest bands in America. Right. And off he went. Well, J.Y., John and Chuck said, let's replace him. They were so mad. Let's replace Tommy Shaw, 1984. I said, what? I mean, I thought that you would need some self-awareness as to how the Sticks' success story, where it was based. And it was based primarily on Tommy and me. Mm -hmm. And I did not want the responsibility of replacing him. And I told him that. But they, every six months, J.Y. would call me and say, let's go, let's do it, let's replace him. I said, no. So I guess... That loyalty was replaced in 1999 when they replaced me as the band. <laughs> but that's the true story. And if I'm lying, I'm dying. Was there some animosity to lead to that? I mean, it sounds like you're pretty blindsided by that whole thing. Animosity where? Animosity from them towards you. To, like they said, if you, you needed some time. Yeah, all the guys, were, they didn't have a job. Yeah. They were out of a job. Tommy and I got solo record contracts. Right. A&M picked up the options on what they call key man clauses. We got to make records. Um, nobody else did. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they were mad. But the fact is, I did not want to try to reunite without Tommy. I think Tommy and I together makes magic. Not to denigrate the other guys. Everybody was responsible for the sound of those records. The personalities and the playing styles made what Sticks was. But... The creative end, I mean, primarily from me and uh, from Tommy, and I knew that, and I wasn't going to change that. What um, it's interesting because I grew up in Canada, I'm from 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 Winnipeg, Canada, and Gowan was pretty popular in the '80s with a couple songs. Criminal Mind was one of his big songs, and Strange Animal. So when he got the gig, I was like, "Wow, that's like a, one of the few guys that can actually sing those parts and plays keyboards uh, as well." Um, Interesting choice for them. Did you, what did you think of that? I have to be careful. Here's what I would say about Larry. He's the best Lawrence Gowan in the world. Yeah, right. I'm the best Dennis DeYoung, and nobody even comes close. I would defy anyone to listen to these little phone things, right? Go to Dennis DeYoung and the music of Sticks Live in L.A. and listen. That's the way that guy sounds. Mm-hmm. Larry is a wonderful guy. He's a good keyboard player. I wrote those songs. Nobody sings them like me, not even close. The addition of Larry has 
taken the most loyal fan base in the world and divided it viciously. Right. So people are super cruel to the members of Styx because of that move. And I think Larry is, he's taken his, I would say, fair share of criticism. Once again, Larry, be Larry. Being Dennis, that's my job. And nobody sounds like me, not even close. If I had been in sticks at the time and voted to replace me, I would have went out, even if the guy didn't play keyboards, and I would have got a singer that sang the living heck out of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And if I had to get another keyboard player, if I couldn't get it in the same package, fine. Right. That's what I would have done. But look, they did what they did. But because of that, I think I've had a very extreme... I compete with them wherever we go, and I don't have the name. I compete with them. Chris, hmm. I do. And I think it was a benefit to me that they hired Lawrence. In, in what way was it a benefit? Because I will play the entire Sticks catalog unashamedly, unabashedly, which contains all of Tommy's great songs. Because I, I got a guy that sounds like Tommy. Mm, gotcha. They don't have a guy that sounds like Dennis. Mm -hmm. So I take the advantage. And not only did I play all the songs, but you got me. Remember, of the eight top ten singles, I wrote and sang seven of them. Mm. Before Tommy joined, we had a hit record and a gold album and recorded an album that would go on to sell two and a half million copies called Equinox. While Tommy was playing acoustic guitar in a bowling alley in Alabama when we called him. And then after he'd left, we did Edge of the Century, which had a number three hit, Show Me the Way. That's right, yeah. That gave us hits in three decades. How about that? Yeah, because that was like 1990, I believe, or something like that, right? 1991, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's my feeling on the thing. Now, that's not to say that you can't like the new incarnation of Sticks. Who am I to tell anybody how they spend their money to be entertained? I get it. If you like it, you like it. Doggone it. Say about it. So um, right now, you go and listen to Larry sing Lady, unless me sing it. It's not, a, that's not, it's not the same thing. And I feel bad for Larry. You know, I mean, he took the gig. Mm -hmm. So he knew there'd be some criticisms. But that fan base, which was so beautiful, has been torn to shreds. They divided into camps, and I hate that. Sticks wasn't about the individuals. It was about the collective. Right, very much so. Very much so. So 26 East kids, pick it up. You can go listen to East of Midnight. It's on <laughs> YouTube or, you know, like I said, iTunes or Amazon or, you know, Spotify, and, and listen to it. And if you like it, you know, download it and keep, music, keep the music alive. And go see the gigs and buy the T-shirts and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Oh, I don't even care. You probably have T-shirts. Buy the music. That's what I... <laughs> I, I buy the T-shirts because people like to have a souvenir. But me, it's not... You know, I'm not a haberdasher, right? Mm-hmm. And if I, I'm not selling keychains or coffee mugs. I'm selling music. <laughs> That's great. All right, hold on. Okay. Don't move. Coffee! The real Dennis DeYoung letting his sister in the door. Hello, I'm coming. There it is. Now, hold on, I'm almost there. <laughs>
So, my my sister, I'm doing this video for to the good old days. It's going to have home movies. It's my life. Right. Photographs, everything going back to the three guys who started the band. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Sentimental stuff. So bring a hanky if you, you know. And and so my sister, who I haven't seen, of course, right. in a month, she shows up in the driveway up there. So I go out there. I know she's bringing me photos. I go out to the car and she's dropped the photos at the front door. <laughs> she's in the driveway with her husband, Jim. And um, she's... She's talking to me, and she look, takes her hands out, and she's got rubber gloves on and a mask. It's just unbelievable. Can you believe this? Isn't it crazy when you think about that? Oh, my God. I think I, I said, I'll give you a hug, but I don't want to die. <laughs> Let me ask, what do you think? Is, do you think this is going to change the way that people go to see concerts? How do you think this is going to affect the music industry when we do get back up and rolling to whatever the new normal is? going to scare the death out of the audience for some time until they figure out if they declare we have a vaccine and a cure in this way that you'll get the flu but you won't you know only the really sick will die like always right uh, people will gradually come back not at, not in i don't think they're going to come back in a rush mm-hmm. specifically my audience chris my audience is older right but be careful so i'm thinking this is easily a year it, it's heartbreaking for me to say it but I, I don't see a way around it because people are going to be scared. Why wouldn't they be scared? Mm-hmm. You know how many people? You know how many people are actually staying in their house now? You're always going to get some mooks and morons, right? Mm-hmm. Who are going to defy it because they know better. They don't know. Shit. That's it. They're imbeciles. If we stay away from each other, we got a, ch- a chance to stop this. So we got to do that. Nobody wants to. I don't want to do it. I hate this. But. What are you going to do? Right. So if that passes, we'll be in good shape. But I think it's going to take time for people to get comfortable with the no- notion that something invisible. Now, let me ask you. Here he is, Chris Jericho. Welcome to the ring. Today he'll be wrestling an invisible wrestler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nobody wants to do that, do they? You want to be able to see and touch your enemy. And that's what we're fighting, something we can't see. Last, uh, last few questions for you, Dennis. Um, of all the tunes on this new record, which, which is your favorite, uh, favorite on the album? It's hard to say because they're all your kids, but which one stands out or which few of them stand out for you? Well, obviously the Julian Lennon song because it's, it's my heart. It's my reason for being. After that, um, I really love, with all due respect, You Are an A-Hole. <laughs> that's great, yeah. Okay, I mean, that's just it. Then I would say I like Run for the Roses, and uh, Kingdom of Blaze. I love those songs. Uh, the, all of them are good. It's just, you know, emotionally, and um, I, I think you just like them. When you're doing them, you think, oh, man, this is this doesn't suck. <laughs> right. And that's what you're looking for here. And I told, I told Jim uh, Peterick, who I worked with on this album, this is a concept album, and the concept is don't suck. That's it. Pretty simple. And did I tell you, my son, Matt, who's my L.D., uh, he played drums on To the Good Old Days. So, yeah, full circle, right? Father and son, father and son. Mm-hmm. Isn't that nice? Yeah, very nice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Once again, to your listeners, you you can go. Hit YouTube or whatever it is you do. If you type it in, it'll be there, and you can listen. You can say, oh, that's that. Thank you. No, thank you. That's what the good thing is. And so getting back to what people like and what they don't like. 
spend your money where you want to spend it. What makes you happy is what counts. Because, as we now know, life is ephemeral and much too short. And at any moment, disaster could strike. So enjoy the moments you can with the ones you love, the music you love. And now that you're really spending quality time with your family, please don't try to kill them. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> Last couple of questions. What's your favorite stick song to sing to this day? I, I don't care. I swear to God. If I start playing something, I sing something, and the people go mental, I'm happy. What, what am I? I I'm, I'm easy. You know what I mean? Look at Chris. You know why you're as, as successful as you were? Can I tell you? Please, what's the, what's the secret? You were trying to get approval. You were trying to have somebody say, Chris, you did okay. We love you. Mm-hmm. You want that pat on the head. That's why you do what you do. Not because you're a wrestler or a musician, but because you want, I believe, this is, I think guys like you and me who are ambitious and driven, which we are, you don't have to apologize. We're trying to please somebody who's really tough or impossible to please. And I always think it's either mom or dad. And we want their approval. And so we work, we work hard to get it from strangers. Is that too deep? No, but it's, it's in there. It's part of it for sure. I mean, I, I, I think that. Yeah. We want the pet on the head. We want to be loved. And what's wrong with that? We're only human. What, uh, thinking back to when, when I was probably 12 or 13, Domo Arigato, Mr. Roboto, everybody, everybody was singing that. All the kids in my school, because we thought it was so cool of Domo Arigato. What does that mean? Oh, it means thank you very much in Japanese. Like, ooh, like we actually learned something from Dennis DeYoung and, and Styx. Uh, what an what a interesting tune. Let me ask you a question. Now, be honest. You can be honest. How you were, 13? 12 or 13, yeah. 1983. Yeah, 12. Were you doing the robot with your friends? What were you doing? I'm just asking. We didn't do the robot. I don't think that had that up in Winnipeg, but I just remember everyone just singing Domo Arigato, Mr. Roboto. People liked it, didn't they? It was a catchphrase. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Tommy and, and, and G.Y. and I and old Ben loved that song when we were doing it. We loved it. Tommy brought the vocoder, you know, bow, 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 bow. Yeah. he brought that into the band, not me. I'm, if I'm not mistaken, that's him doing that on the record. We loved it. As I said, uh, the, the problems with the Kilroy tour was not that song. The problems were, I asked a lot of the band, which was like even acting in a, a, on stage, gotcha. to do what I thought was a rock, a rock theater piece, pushing the boundaries. But the real problem was, we were, in 83, experiencing the beginnings of the change in music, right. which was supposed to happen. That's where Bob Borbata was part of that. And after that, a lot of the English bands, a lot of the techno bands, go back and look. A year or so later, Van Halen put synthesizers in their rock music. That's right. ZZ Top, too. What does ZZ do? legs, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we just went, we jumped in both feet. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what it was all about. But ultimately, here's what I'm going to tell you on an aside. Rock bands always have differences of opinions and creative differences. Put five people in the room, need I tell you? That's how it works. You have a band, people have different ideas. But we worked together competitively for, God, ten years and made it work in our advantage. And I always tell people, ask me, why do rock bands break up? 
apart from, you know, somebody sleeping with the drummer's wife, I think it's drugs and alcohol. Right. Drugs and alcohol impair your thinking process. They can make you think things that are not true. It's awful. And cocaine has destroyed more bands, right, mm-hmm. than any creative difference in the world. So I just look at the whole thing and I say to myself, well, we all love Mr. Roboto because we were, we were having a ball because we never did anything like it. All of us were in there mixing, like six of us around the board in the days before automation, having a ball. It was fun. And look, you know what Mr. Roboto has done? Just recently, it applied for acceptance into pop culture, and it got it. You can't go anywhere, right? Here's the the joke of it all. When I talk to somebody, a young person, they go, oh, I hear you're a rock star. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sticks. <laughs> ah, Sticks. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the songs? I go, Come Sail Away, Renegade, right? Best Time, Lady Bay, Blue Cover, Too Much Time. They, they look most of the time and, and I go, Mr. Roboto. Oh, you did Mr. Swear to God. <laughs> That's the one. Swear to God. So, no matter what anybody says, and, I, and I'm not saying I'm happy about this, but I tell you, long term, our most famous song will be Mr. Roboto. I guarantee it. You want to know why? Why? Because robots are the future. That's, <laughs> that's, that's right. right. That's right. Do you ever think that uh, you'll do a kind of a reunion tour with the other guys in the sticks and unite the two fan bases that have been split apart, like you mentioned? I have publicly said it for the last three or four years. We should do one more tour. Listen, did you see the Rolling Stone piece I just did? I didn't. I'll check it out, though. Check it out. Andy Green, great guy, came to me and asked me that very quick. Did a whole piece on me and Rolling Stone just three weeks ago. I'd still be in the band if it was up to me. And I publicly said, let's do one more tour for the fans. They deserve to see Mo, Larry, and Curly on the stage one more time together. And Shemp, that would be Chuck, whenever he feels good. I said it publicly. Tommy and J.Y. have been publicly and privately... They have said, no, I, it's out of my hands. It's not my ego. It's not my burying the hatchet. I'm ready to go. Chris, call me. Let me know when I have to pack my bags. <laughs> if you've got any gripes, you want to see the sticks thing one more time, as God had intended it, go to their Facebook page and tell them. I have no control over it. Don't come to mine. I want people, I'm just running you guys. Hey, I, I put it out there. You know, it's like I keep asking the girl to dance. <laughs> well, Dennis, it's been great talking to you, man. And either way, you got a great new record in 26 East. And hopefully uh, when all of this is done and, and the pandemic is gone, we'll be able to come uh, come see you rock out again for sure. Yeah, I hope so. And thanks for the interview. You're, you know what? Kids, you don't understand this. I've done you know how many interviews I've done in my life. Yeah. Too many. Yeah. But Chris listens and doesn't try to be the whole show, which means... He's a smart guy. He puts the guest in the spotlight. And I thank you for that because it's getting dark in here. Honey, is it getting dark in here or is my eyes failing? <laughs> Can you do me a favor and uh, take us out with one more uh, one more little line from Judas there? You sang it so well. Okay, hold on a second. I had it in my head. Judas, Judas in my I got Judas in my mind, Judas in my mind. It was better the first time, wasn't it? <laughs> Hold on, hold on, they go to the piano, wait a minute. Oh, I got it, okay, here we go. I got Judas in 
my. Oh, that's a major key. Best bad. Get the good one. Ready? <laughs> I got Judas in, Judas in, Judas in my. Oh, God. Judas in my mind. I'm fucking with your goddamn melody. Be clever and I can't do it. Hold on. Nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Dennis. All right, buddy. Thanks for being on. And do your, do yourself a favor now, right? What's that? Rub that stab on you after you get out of the ring. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> thanks, dude. Stay healthy, man. Hope to see you soon in person. Bye-bye. Cheers.